Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Tonight, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. This might be some texts that are familiar to you, and I'll attempt to put it, put it into its uh, larger context as we go along. This is John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. It says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The word of God for the people of God. So one of the things that we looked at as, as we were exploring uh, this, this set of text here is how it breaks down into different component parts. What you have in John chapter 7 is Jesus going down to Jerusalem for the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. This is a harvest time festival where people would gather to celebrate what God has done and the provisions that God has given to his people, uh, most notably in the sustenance of the people in the crops and the things that they would be able to give thanks for. This, this festival was a week-long time of pomp and circumstance. There was all sorts of processions that would take place, as we'll see. But what scholars have noticed is after these first 52 verses in John chapter 7, there's this really weird story that just kind of seems to be jammed in the middle. It's as if this story was not originally happening here in this spot, but someone somewhere has taken this passage and placed it here in its current context. Because if you read John chapter 7 up to 52, and then you pick up the story in John 8 verse 12, it seems to go seamless. It seems to be as if Jesus has this one massive teaching during the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles, 
where he is just teaching the people. This is going to be important because some of the um, symbology that's happening in this sermon will be much more pointed if we understand it as something that's happening in this specific moment. So as we talked about um, a few weeks ago, whenever it is that we were looking at John chapter 7, we saw uh, that Jesus, in his first teaching, he was proclaiming himself to be this source of water. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Now, the background of this is the priests during the festival of tabernacles, they would process from the temple. They would go to the pool of Siloam. They would take golden vessels with them, fill them up with water, march back to the temple and dump the water onto the altar. And this is where Jesus stands up as this procession is happening, perhaps right in the backdrop of his teaching, of his sermon, where he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Meanwhile, the priests are dousing the altar with these processional jugs of water, the simchat Beit Hashoeva, the water pouring ceremony, the rejoicing of the water pouring ceremony. And Jesus is saying, I am better than that. I am the fulfillment of that. The water that is being poured over the altar, I am able to give you much better, more important, everlasting, living water. When you understand the backdrop of this sermon, it takes on new tones because what Jesus is doing, it's almost polemical. I am bringing something new to bear in this moment. And if you take away the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, and you just have this long sermon where he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and you've got the priest pouring the water over the altar, and then you extend it to where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and you think about the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths, there's also more symbology that makes that statement even more important. So when Jesus steps up to the plate again and either continues this sermon or even on the heels of this festival, it doesn't matter a whole lot if you put this a couple days later, even though I think it fits better uh, as I'm explaining it right now. He says, I am the light of the world. And one scholar says the Mishnah, this, this collection of Jewish teaching that wasn't brought together until 200 CE, say 200 CE, that's longer, that's later than when Jesus showed up, but most people think that this is including earlier Jewish traditions, although, friends, the dating of rabbinic materials is notably difficult, okay? Now, the Mishnah, it describes the lighting of four large lampstands in the temple court of the women. This is a temple court that was available to all travelers, the temple court of women at the close of the first festival day. So on the first day of the festival of tabernacles or booze, there's this, there's this moment with these four big lampstands, and it says that they're, they're lighted, uh, and the lampstands, they produced much more light so that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Beit HaShoeva. Celebrants at tabernacles danced before those candlesticks with burning torches, adding even more light to their joyous celebration. This is part of the procession. This is part of the festival's goings-on in this moment where Jesus is not just saying, I'm better than the water that's being poured out. He's also standing with the backdrop of this massive lampstand saying, I'm the light of the world. We know that this light has reflected out of Jerusalem and it can be shown all over the place, but let me tell you, I 
I'm the light. I'm the light of the world that's more important than what is going on here and now. Gail O'Day continues, as with the words about water, which is what I've been talking about earlier in the passage, here Jesus is declaring himself to be the true fulfillment of tabernacle's joy when he declares himself to be the light of the world. Old rites are once again transformed by Jesus' incarnate presence. And the tabernacle's light illuminated all of Jerusalem, but Jesus is the light of the world. This is beautiful street theater that's happening here. I think for the most part, we just listen to Jesus' words. We pick out the red letters in our, in our NIV, but we don't understand what he's actually doing. Like this is masterful preaching and teaching. I thought about some way that I could like cut out all of the lights in here and just have like a light source and like do some kind of like really hip cool thing. But look at those windows. Nobody's blacking those out. Those things cannot be stopped. It's a nice metaphor for the church, but we'll get to that later. But Jesus, he's preaching in a way that demonstrates not these like cheap tricks, but he's got layer upon layer in his teaching that is putting weight on the things that he is attempting to communicate to his audience. I am the light of the world. And just think that as you look over his shoulder and you see this massive lampstand behind him, I, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. Meanwhile, the priests are dumping the altar with water. Jesus is taking the symbology of the time and saying, I am better. I am the light of the world. I am the one you've been waiting for. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the promised one. I'm, this is important, I am the Messiah. It's happening. Check out my hashtag there in the bottom right corner. If any of you follow Salisbury stuff, like Salisbury says, it's happening. Hashtag SBY rising. That's my it's happening. Hashtag Jerusalem rising. Okay, I know no joke is good when you have to explain it, but I knew that you guys wouldn't see that, okay? But like Jesus is saying, hey, I want you guys to pay attention because the end is coming into the present and I'm bringing it. The kingdom of God is invading this place. And it's the work that I am about. His teaching has massive implications. Now, throughout his, his teaching here, he is setting off the religious authorities. The Pharisees are not having it, mainly because they have no idea what it is that he's talking about. But as we'll look at next week, over the next 30 or 40 verses, the ire of Jesus how infuriated he is at these people. The tone in his voice, if you can read it into the text, he is angry that these religious leaders have no idea what it is that he's saying. They're, they're completely missing each other as ships in the night. They don't understand what Jesus is attempting to communicate to them by the use of these symbols and in these teachings. However, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, there's, there's Old Testament texts that have so much um, symbolic meaning that's, that's, that's fronting this metaphor of the Messiah as a light source. For example, in Isaiah 42, this is one of the um, handful of texts about the, the suffering servant or the servant Israel uh, in, in Isaiah's uh, in Isaiah 40 through 55. This is Isaiah 42. It says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. For who? 
This is important. Because again, the scope is not just for the Jewish people. The scope, even in the Old Testament, it went beyond God's people. God's people were to be a light to the nations. And this would be um, programmatically fulfilled in this servant figure. So when Jesus steps up to the plate, not only is he saying, look over my shoulder at these big lampstands, he's also saying, remember all those really important texts. It's happening, it's here, it's right now. In Isaiah 49, something similar, it says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This light is also a recurring theme in the book of John, not to belabor the point, but this has um, some impact for where we're gonna go with this. In John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming in to the world. In John chapter three, in Jesus's discourse with Nicodemus, it says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And then in John 12, Jesus tells them, you are going to have the light that is him. He's explaining, you're gonna have this light for just a little while longer. I'm getting ready to die. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When Jesus steps up to the plate and he says, I am the light of the world, this is not without context. You've got a couple of competing contexts, actually. You have the lampstand where Jesus is saying, I'm the, the fulfillment of this procession. I am the more important figure of this, this thing that we are looking forward to celebrating the goodness of God. I am the embodiment of that here and now, or all this stuff from the Old Testament, the one who would bring light to the nations. Jesus is saying, it's here, it's now, it's happening with me. Get on board. But the people that he's talking to, they're not hearing him. Instead, they're kind of stiff-arming Jesus as to what it is that he is attempting to communicate to them. Now look, this passage in John, it's Christological. It's meant to teach us something about who Jesus is. In fact, this comes up all throughout this uh, extending context. Who do you think you are? Jesus is sort of uh, demonstrating himself to be the, the messianic figure that everyone was waiting for. He was dissimilar from other people in this, in this sense. He was God's son. He had a relationship with the father that no one else seemed to be aware of. God was his, his very own witness. Jesus is saying that he has come from heaven and he is going back to heaven. He knows about his origin and his destination. Jesus is attempting to promote himself, or at least John in this passage is promoting Jesus as the son of God who is worthy of worship. But here's the thing. Whenever I stand before you guys and whenever I read these commentaries and whenever I think about what it is that we need to, to discuss, the things that you receive are dependent upon a number of factors. One would be prayer. One would be time. 
but also the one that I think gets overlooked is my own circumstances in life. The things that I'm wrestling with at the moment, the season of life that I'm in and how that affects how I'm looking at these passages in the Bible. There's lots of things that I could pull out of this passage in particular. We could talk about Jesus as the light. We could talk about uh, the, the witnesses and the validity of Jesus's witnesses. And in the Jewish context of that, we could talk about the judgment themes that come up in these handful of verses. We could even go beyond that and get into some really nitty gritty and fun stuff in, in the next few sections of this passage. But the things that, that stuck out to me, they're highly dependent upon where I am in my own life and walk with the Lord. I don't think that's different from any other pastor, although I don't know if it gets talked about too often. When I see these passages, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will, they will have the light of life. Or the passage in John 12, where it says, believe in the light while you have the light so that you might become children of light. There's a couple things that, that stuck out to me. The first thing is comfort. I know that the lives that you guys live, it might not help you throughout the week to be thinking of the symbolic nature of Jesus's preaching, to think about the priest dumping the water or the lampstand over Jesus's shoulder. But I do hope that maybe some of the thing that allows you to move from Sunday into the atrocity that is Monday into the rest of your week would be these beautiful and precious promises where Jesus is saying, you will not walk in darkness. Believe in me and you will become a child of light. Like these are beautiful promises that regardless of what it is that we go through in the mundane routines of our lives, in the midst of suffering and hurt, in the midst of confusion and doubt, in the midst of jadedness, in the midst of hurt and pain, if we allow ourselves to take one step back and remember that we are not walking in darkness and that we are children of light, I'd like to put forward to you that whatever comes our way, we might have hope. We might have comfort. We might have some peace that Jesus is at work, that Jesus has not left us or abandoned us, that Jesus is not done with us, and that Jesus is illuminating the path upon which we walk. Now, I understand that within the church, this is open to massive misinterpretation because for some people, they take that as a guarantee of success. Jesus will always be with me. Therefore, I will not face any sort of pain, hurt, jadedness, doubt, fill in the blanks. Jesus is with me. Therefore, I'll be blessed. All my bills will get paid. All my health will be good. Whatever I pray for will be answered. We know that that's all silly because we've lived for a few days where that kind of stuff doesn't actually happen. However, I don't think that that undermines the promises that we are not walking in darkness. And when Jesus says, when you believe in me, when you follow me, when you align yourself with me, you are a child of light. Think about that for a moment, because what we have is the king of the universe saying, you're in my family. 
I don't know about you guys, but tomorrow I'll go to my dad's pool house and I'll sit on a picnic table and the family will gather. And there's, there's, there's something to be said about the blood that unites the family. Right, dad? There you go. A lot of times, for some of us, we might not have that real um, tangible familial association, and, and sometimes this is difficult for us to understand. You are a beloved son or daughter of God. If we could actually believe that and hold on to that, when we wake up on Monday morning and when we go throughout our work week and whenever those things happen to us, we can remember who we are. We can remember the identity that we have in Jesus. I think sometimes I, I forget to give us opportunities to pause and to remember that simplistic but so deep and rich text. You are family. Jesus is lighting your path. You are not alone. You have not been abandoned. Jesus is with you. Now that's great, right? Comfort. That's good. It's something you can hold on to, stick in your front pocket, and then you leave and go on your work week. But you know I'm not all like in the feels all the time. So sometimes it's just, we move from like, hold on to this. It's true. You are family. You, are, you, you have a, a path that is lighted by King Jesus. However, I think there's also one more thing that we should mention about this particular text. And it has to do with our calling. If, for example, we are walking upon a path that will never be dark, if our path is illuminated wherever we go, and maybe I'm taking this metaphor way too far, okay? Then we will be agents who dispel the darkness in the world around us. This is where I've been hanging out all week. Comfort, that's great. I need to hold on to that. I probably need to sit with that a little bit more, but my... My threeness that says I'm not worthy of love and affection makes me go over here to look, what can I do? What can I perform? How can I make this? That's Enneagram talk. That's kind of, that's where I'm at. But like when we move away from the comfort into what does this look like? What does this mean? I was walking the dog the other day and I have some real divine epiphanies as I'm walking the dog. But I remember thinking to myself, what have I been doing all week? Who have I been helping? Who have I been serving? What has my faith manifested in any way, shape, or form? Or have I just been in a corner reading books to gain knowledge? When we are children of light, when we are not walking in darkness, we take the light with us wherever we go, and we should be dispelling the darkness in the lives of people around us. I see this working out in two ways. One way is totally heartbreaking. Namely, it seems as though we have people within the church, the capital C church, that are not illuminating the paths for people, but they are actually working to subvert the light in other people's walks. They are making those walks a bit darker, which means when I sit across the table from LGBT folks, who say, no one has ever told me that I'm loved. 
then I must dispel the darkness in their life and in their circumstance. When I go online and I see, see people responding to a, a lot of these uh, abortion restrictions that are taking place and the people that are commenting below have such a cavalier notion of the people who have been involved in these procedures and, and the choices that they have had to make. It's then in which we have to dispel the darkness to say, you are not discarded. You are not unworthy. You are family. It's when we hear people saying, oh God, this is going to get intense here for a moment, but I want to say this with a microphone attached to me because I've only said it uh, across the table at times. But when, when people's theology is so oppressive that they make God the author of rape, of abuse, physical or verbal, when they back that up and then and they put God into that category, I want to be the one who dispels the darkness here that God is not attempting to teach you something through those atrocities that your life has not been planned out to take you down these ridiculous roads of sickness and hurt and pain. That's not who God is. But the people that serve God at times have thrown darkness on the path of people who are walking on that road. And it is then when we are carrying the light of Christ with us that we have to find our voice and speak things out loud to dispel the darkness. It's when we see systemic racism. It's when we see people who have prejudice and privilege. It's when we see these things of people that are oppressing their neighbors when we must dispel the darkness in the name of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that I'm right, and it doesn't mean that I know everything of what I'm talking about, but I do know that at times the church has trashed its own and it has to stop, and maybe it can start with some of us. The other way in which this seems to be working out, and this is also something that we don't talk about too often, and this is not something that you're going to want to stick in your pocket and take to work with you tomorrow, but at times, it at least must be said that we inflict our own darkness upon us. As Jesus continues on in this, um, I'll make sense of that in a second. As Jesus continues on in this discourse, the Jewish religious leaders of the time, they say, we're, we're Abraham's kids. We're in. It's in our blood. It's who we are. And Jesus says, well, I'm not disputing that but you're not living like Abraham was living. And at times, ourselves included, we take advantage of that free offer of you are family and we use it to do whatever it is that we want to, to do. When I was growing up, that usually looked like smoking, cussing, having sex, like all these, these, these lists of things that you do not do dancing, that kind of stuff, which is why when I go to weddings, it's a real, it's, a, it's, a, it's an atrocity in and of itself because nobody ever taught me, you know, right foot, left stomp. I can do those. If somebody's like telling me what to do, then, but otherwise it's a lost, it's a lost cause. But I would also submit to you that at times, and it's, it's good, this goes back to what we were just saying, we choose to darken the light of Jesus 
when we choose to remain silent. We choose to darken the light of Jesus when we wallow in our own selfish ambitions and desires. We dim the light of Jesus when we care about ourselves more than we care about anyone else. I want you guys throughout this week, I want you to hold on to those good promises. If you are following Jesus, man, you aren't, you aren't lost. You haven't been glossed over. He has not left you. He will not forsake you. Your, your, your path is well lit because he walks. The source of light walks with you wherever you go, guiding you, mourning with you when you mourn, rejoicing with you when you rejoice. That should be something that helps us navigate the difficulties of life. And on the other side of the coin, I do believe that it's the church's responsibility and privilege to dispel the darkness in the lives of the people that have been so hurt, whether it's at the hands of the church or whether it's just life. May we be light to them because children of light just don't receive. We shine. May we be a people who can dispel the darkness in this world and make a good name for Jesus Christ to the people that we have been privileged to interact with. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.